thanks for joining us here at New Song Church, where we are helping people to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you ever have any questions or you want to learn more about us as a church, you can check us out online at newsongplymouth.church. It is the best way to stay connected with us throughout your week. And now, check out this week's sermon. With, with all those announcements out of the way, we're going to jump into the Word this morning. I'm, I'm really excited to be sharing with you, uh, kind of kicking off a brand new series that we're calling Frequently Asked Questions. And we've done a series like this from time to time where we've just kind of taken some, some questions that we often get and trying to give some, some clarity as to what, the, what, what some of those questions are about, about God, about the Bible, about faith. And, and so there, there's... One of the things, I, and we're going to jump right into your sermon notes that, that you got on your way in today, because I, I want you to, this is going to kind of be a core part of, of this series over the next couple weeks. And number one, I want you to write this down, that God is not intimidated by our questions. God is not intimidated by our questions whatsoever. And, and this is something that's so key. He doesn't get upset when we say, all right, God, this doesn't quite make sense. I, I, don't, I don't fully get this. What's going on? I don't... I don't understand. And, and I'll tell you, there, there are multiple psalms that talk, that, that ask these exact questions. I mean, I mean how, many, how many of you know David had some questions in his life? And, and I want to share one of those with you right now. It's Psalm 13, verses 1 through 4. And this is David writing. He says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. I mean, David was asking some tough questions. He was kind of calling God out and saying, all right, God, what? this doesn't make sense to me. I, I, I know your character. I know your promises, but I'm looking at my life right now and it's not quite adding up. What's going on? And, and I want you to know, God doesn't get mad at him. God doesn't rebuke him. God doesn't give him a, a spiritual spanking for asking these questions. In fact, the Bible says that God sympathizes with our weaknesses, that, that God knows. He understands that, yeah, we don't see the whole picture. We, we don't necessarily have the, the, entire, uh, the entire thing laid out before us. And, and so God, do, God is not intimidated by our questions. I, and and I, I wanted to say this. Tyrants refuse to be questioned. Like, it, like if you look throughout all of history and even, even regimes today, tyrants don't ever want to be questioned. Like, all right, you do what I say or you're going to get sent off to the gulag. You know, I, but, but God's not a tyrant. God doesn't mind our questions. And, and I'll tell you this. Asking questions doesn't demonstrate a lack of faith. If you have questions, it doesn't mean you have a lack of faith. In fact, I would argue that it means you're taking your faith very seriously, that, that you're thinking critically. You're trying, to, you're trying to process and work things out, and you're trying to understand because, because your faith means something to you. And so, so when you're asking questions, it doesn't mean that you lack faith. In fact, I would say it, it means that you take your faith very seriously. I, I mean, and if, if you think about it this way, John the Baptist even questioned Jesus, like when John the Baptist was in prison, he said, all right, like, are you really the son of God? Are you the Messiah or are we waiting for somebody else? And so like even John the Baptist, even Jesus's cousin had some questions. And so I want you to know it's not wrong 
to ask questions. I, I believe that, that God, he welcomes our questions. Now, before we kind of get into the question we're going to unpack and talk about today, I want to share with you next week. You're going to want to be here next week because the question Pastor Justin is going to tackle next Sunday is, so what's the deal with Song of Solomon? Now, now if, if you know your Bible well, you know it's going to be a fun Sunday. And if you're not familiar with the Song of Solomon, you, you, have, you have some reading the homework this week, and I guarantee you, you're going to love it. It's going to be a great, it'll be a great time. You and your spouse should read it together. Have, have fun. Enjoy. Um, so I'm just going to tease that and just, just enjoy it. So I'll be honest, I was kind of hoping that he would have given me that question. That would have been a fun one to do. But, but anyways, I, I, I won't go into that. But, but, but the question we're going to be tackling and talking about today is one that I've heard so many times over the years. And to be honest, it's one that I've wrestled with from time to time too. And, and it's, so why does God seem so angry in the Old Testament? Like, if, if you read through the Old Testament, why does, why does he seem like he's just ticked off all the time? And, and I'll tell you, this is, this is, it's a tough one. Like, th- this is, this is a, a tough question for us to kind of work through and wrestle through. But I, 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 I think it's going to be, I think we're going to have a good time this morning with it. So, I, just as I was thinking about this, have, have, you ever, have you ever, like, bought a product and you were thinking it was going to be one thing, and then when you actually took it home and you started interacting with it, it wasn't anything like you thought it was going to be? Like if you've ever bought anything like on an infomercial, is there anybody who's ever stayed up late and at 2 in the morning made a, an impulse purchase on an infomercial? There you go, Devin. I see that hand. All right. And, and you think, wow, that is amazing. Like you see Chef Tony, and he's like cutting rock with a knife, and he's cutting through a leather boot, and then he can still thinly slice a tomato, the, the Miracle Blade, or, or, or the Ronco Showtime rotisserie oven where all you have to do is set it and... Yeah, yeah see, we know... And my, my roommate bought the Ronco Showtime rotisserie oven. And, and, and I'll tell you, like, you, it looks great. You're thinking, wow, this is going to be awesome. This is just going to save us so much time and effort and all this. And then the more you kind of get to know it and the more you get to use it, it doesn't quite live up to what you were thinking it was when, when you originally bought it. Is there anybody that's ever had some buyer's remorse? Well, I'll tell you, sometimes it can feel like that with God, that we have, we have an idea in our head of what God is like. We think God is, is this, this loving, gracious, forgiving God, and then you read some of these stories and you're saying, well, that doesn't quite match up with who I thought you were, and, and, it, and it really kind of leaves this disconnect. It, it's almost like in the Bible, there's like a tale of two gods. The, the God in the New Testament is that loving, gracious, forgiving God, but the God in the Old Testament, like, he had some kind of personality disorder where he's just, like, angry and wrathful and vengeful and warlike. And, and, and it seems like those two don't quite square up. Right? Is there anybody in the room who's ever wrestled with that and thought, man, that really doesn't make a lot of sense to me? And so as, as we kind of talk about this this morning, I want to kind of share two things right off the bat with you. The first one is I'm not going to be able to answer every question you have on this topic. I mean, there's some things where I'm reading and it just flat doesn't make sense to me. So I, I, I'm not going to be able to fully give you a, 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 an all-encompassing theory about who, who God is. And, and, and I'll tell you, because anybody who claims they have God figured out, run. Like, you don't, don't listen to them. 
So, so what, what, I, what I am trying to do is I'm trying to just give you a taste of, of the nature and the character of who God is. So that, that's what I'm going to be trying to do this morning. And the second is, there's no way I could possibly cover this huge topic in just one, one Sunday. But like I said, I'm, I'm trying to give you a, a, a taste of, of who the nature and the character of God really is. So to begin our discussion, I want to share this with you. And this is number two on your sermon notes. And this is, this is foundational to, to what we're going to be talking about today is God never changes. God never changes. And I have a couple scriptures to go with this. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Malachi 3.6 says, and this, this is God talking. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Like he's kind of spelling it out right there. I do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. James 1:17 he says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So that there is no tale of two gods. The, the God it's it's still one God. He he's not he wasn't one God in the Old Testament, one God in the New Testament. He's still one God. In fact, Deuteronomy says this, you know, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He, he doesn't change. And, and this is one of the things that really set Judaism apart from every other religion in the ancient Near East because every other, every other religion was polytheistic. They, they had multiple gods for everything. They had the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of the river, the god of the harvest, the god of fertility and all this. Well, Judaism was different. They were monotheistic. They had just one god. So God is one, but he never, he never changes. So, so how do we account for what appears to be this discrepancy between the character of God in the Old Testament and the character of God in the New Testament? How do we, how do we square this? And, and I'll, I'll tell you one thing, is we can read. Like if, if, you, if you read your Bible, you're gonna see that the idea of this Old Testament God, that all he is, he's just angry and ticked off and wrathful and vengeful and all this, is not, is not a... a What's the right way to say this? It's, it's not a, a, an, an accurate representation of who he really is. It, it's, it doesn't paint the full picture. Now, it, it's, it's kind of like overhearing just a part of a conversation and then drawing a conclusion about what the conversation was about by only hearing that one snippet. Has anybody ever done that before? Where, where you've just overheard one thing and you thought, what in the world was that? Angela and I were talking about this the other day, that this, this is... A couple of years ago, I, I was in Walmart or Kroger or something like that, and there was a guy on the phone, and I overheard him say, if it wasn't for my goat, I would have gone to college. And, 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 and I heard this tiny snippet of this conversation, and I so badly like, would have loved to have heard the entire conversation say, explain this to me, like this goat prevented you, I, like I, I didn't know. And so, like, I was literally taking this one snippet of a conversation and having to kind of draw my own conclusions about this guy and who, it, it was odd. But, but, but anyways, to get a clear picture, you need, you need the whole conversation. And to really get a clear picture of who God is, you can't just take individual stories and individual snippets and draw a conclusion about who God is just from those individual pieces. You need to look at the totality. You need to look at the Old Testament as a whole. And it's, it's that same way with God that we can't just cherry pick certain verses or certain stories and draw those conclusions. So, 
to, to kind of just give you a, a brief demonstration of what I'm talking about, I, I want to share with you a, a story that virtually everybody knows. Everybody is at least familiar with it, and, and it's the story of Jonah, right? And, and everybody, I mean, even, even non-believers are, are aware and know the story of Jonah. This guy, he gets swallowed by a fish and, and all this. And, and so what, what happens in, in the story of Jonah is Jonah is instructed to go to the city of Nineveh and tell the people to repent because God's judgment was coming, all right? Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was a prophet. Nah, never mind. <laughs> Has anybody ever watched the Jonah movie? Okay, I'm alone on that. All right, never mind. But anyways, jo- Jonah, <laughs> Jonah, Jonah was a prophet. And, and God said, all right, Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. In, in fact, God calls it a great city. I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh, and I want you to tell them to repent, that they have 40 days to turn back to God, because otherwise calamity is going to be coming on this city. Well, Jonah doesn't like the people of Nineveh. He, he wants nothing to do with them. And, and in fact, like Nineveh was, it was a wicked city. Like they, they did unspeakable things. It, it, was, it was awful. If you read the historical accounts of, of what actually took place in Nineveh, I mean, it was, it was gruesome. It was awful. And Jonah, he didn't like them. And in fact, he says, you know what, God, you know what, I heard you. I'm going the other way. He, he opts to, to go to a, really about as far away from Nineveh as you could possibly go. He goes to a city called Tarshish. And, and on the way, you know, he's thrown overboard. He's swallowed by the great fish. He's vomited up on a beach. And he finally decides then to go to Nineveh. If you read Jonah chapter 3, it, it's this beautiful kind of prayer of repentance. And he says, all right, God, you know what, I'll, I'll go. And he goes to Nineveh, and he, and he starts preaching to the city. And he says, all right, God, God is not pleased with what's taking place here. I want you to repent. I want you to turn away from your wicked ways, turn away from the things that you've been doing. Because if you don't, there's going to be some pretty dire consequences that, that are coming your way. And, and the Bible records that everyone in the city repents. 100%. Now, now just put yourself in the mindset of, of being a a preacher or a missionary, and you go to a city, and literally 100% of the city, 125,000 people turn away from what they were doing and put their faith and their trust in God. That, that's a good day. I mean, that, that's, I mean you're thinking, wow, that, that, was, that was awesome. Well done. Well, that, that wasn't Jonah's response. In fact, that wasn't his response at all. Jonah actually became angry. He, he became really angry. I'm going to read from you, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. He says, but to Jonah, this seemed wrong because what God did, all right, the people, they repented, and God said, all right, you know what? I'm not going to send that calamity on the city. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to relent. I'm going to hold back that judgment. And to, to Jonah, that seemed wrong, and he became angry. He became angry about it. Now, this verse is really interesting to me, if we can just leave it up there. This verse is really interesting to me because there's a lot of times that our English translations of the Bible don't really give the full um, breadth uh, of, what the, of what the original scriptures were really talking about. Um, he, Hebrew is a very physical language in a lot, in a lot of senses. And, and so some of the words that we use today don't carry that same weight that the original Hebrew words Carrie, just to give you an example, um, many of you are probably familiar with Psalm 23, and one of, one of the verses in Psalm 23 says that, surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Well, that word follow 
isn't just like, oh, I'm just going for a stroll. You know, I'm following you. No, that word follow, it really kind of gives the connotation of like a lion pursuing its prey. And so it, it, like, you've never seen a gazelle saying, oh, look, there's a lion following me. You know, like, no, I mean, it's running for its life. And, and so there's sometimes that our English translations don't really carry the, the same weight that those original Hebrew words have. Well, that's, that's what we have here in Jonah 4.1, that this word angry doesn't just mean, oh, he was upset. Like, the, the, what this word really connotates is he was angry to the point of being physically sick, I, and I don't, know, I don't know if you've ever been that upset, you've ever been that angry, where you just, you felt physically ill by what was taking place. That's the kind of anger that Jonah had in this moment. And I'm, I'm, I'm gonna continue with verses two and three here. And so he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew I, 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 like, I can imagine, like, Jonah waving his finger at God. Like, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better, me, better for me to die than to live. And, and I want to point something about this out. Like, you would think Jonah would be rejoicing that, that these people, the people in Nineveh were going to be spared, that they, that they had repented for their evil ways and God was, was not gonna send calamity on the city. No, 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 no. His chief complaint, he's complaining to God. He's saying, God, you're gracious. You're compassionate. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. You, you, are, you, are, uh, you, you relent from sending calamity. Like, you are a God who specializes in forgiveness and I don't like it. Like, imagine that for a minute. I, I mean, just how, how crazy... That seems. Now, now, many modern critics and atheists and people today will look at the Old Testament God and, and our criticism is, man, God seems so angry and so vengeful and so wrathful. Well, here we have Jonah, who he was a prophet. This was a guy who knew God. He heard from God. And his chief complaint was, God, you're too merciful and you're too loving and you're too gracious and you're too forgiving. And I'll tell you, over and over, if, if you read through the Old Testament, over and over again, we see God extending mercy to those who turn their hearts back to him. I, a couple of weeks ago, I, I shared with you about King Ahab, that the Bible says there was nobody, no king, that did more to arouse the anger of God than King Ahab. And yet when King Ahab turned his heart back to God, God forgave him. You know, we, we have God spared Rahab, the prostitute, and not only did he use her in, in, in the story of the, the Israelites coming and, and taking the promised land, Rahab is also in the lineage of Jesus. We, we have, you know, at, at the Hosea, it, I mean, one of my absolute favorite stories in the Old Testament, the story of Hosea, this Old Testament prophet, where he said, all right, I want you to go and I want you to marry this promiscuous woman, and then I want you to go purchase this prostitute back to you, the, this woman who already belonged to you. I mean, what a beautiful story that is, or, or even from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, that, that God is always making a way. God is always looking for ways to bring his people back to him. And I, I'll tell you, I could go, I could go on and on. There, there are so many Old Testament stories that, where God is constantly showing grace, constantly showing mercy to people who don't deserve it. 
Because if, if we're honest, do any of us in this room deserve grace and mercy? Well, of course not. We, we don't at all. And yet God is constantly showing grace, constantly showing mercy to them. I, I want to share with you, I didn't put this in your sermon notes, but Ezekiel 33, 11 says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn their ways and live. I, I love that verse. God, God takes no pleasure. He takes no, God's not excited when bad things happen to bad people. Not at all. But he says, my heart is that they would turn their hearts, that they, that they would live. And so let, let's bring this back to us today, kind of wrestling with this whole idea of, of this Old Testament angry God. Now, if, if you think about our society today, who, who we are as, as, a, as a group of people, who we are as a society today, we are a society that's desperate for people to like us. Like, we, we, we are desperate for people to like us. And we do all kinds of things to try to get people to like us. Like, we'll, we'll dress a certain way, we'll talk a certain way, we'll, we'll you know, entertain ourselves with certain movies, certain music, you know, whatever it might be. We do all kinds of things to try to get people to like us. I mean, think of social media for a, for a moment. And, and, you know, like, I, I'm con- I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty convinced that this is true. Like, you, you see some of these, and I'm, I'm just going to use ladies, so ladies, I apologize. You see some of these ladies, and they post this, this perfect picture on Facebook or Instagram, and I'm thinking, how many pictures did it take for you to get that one good picture that you finally decided to post, right? Because I have an image. I'm trying to portray something to people so that they will like me, so that they will affirm who I am. And I'll, I'll tell you, the consequence of this is people fall in love with the image and not the reality. All right, are, are you following with me what I'm saying? Like, we, we spend so much time trying to portray this image with this persona that we try to put out there that sometimes people will fall in love with the image and the persona and not the actual person, not the reality behind it. And I'll tell you that no matter how popular you are, no matter how many Facebook friends you have, no matter how many Twitter followers you have, no matter how many people like you, if you don't have people in your life who know the real you, I guarantee you you're an incredibly lonely person. And, and I'll tell you, we need people in our lives. We need people in our lives who know our faults, who know our failures, who know the, the darker side of our character. We, we need people like that in our lives, people who intimately know us, right? Like, we, 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 we need people like that in your life. And I bet you if I asked you, I bet you if I asked, how many people do you have in, in, your, in your sphere, in your circle? Maybe they'd be a spouse, family members, friends. If I asked you, how many people know the real you that know all the good, all the bad, and all the ugly? I'd be willing to bet that number is pretty small. And, and if I'm honest with you, I'm, I'm the same way. I know tons of people. Like, I, I, I'm friendly with, I know a ton of people. I have a very small group of people who, who know me intimately, who know the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'll tell you this, those people, those people who know you intimately, those people that know 
all of your faults and all of your failings and, and like I said, that darker side of your character and they still love you, that is genuine love. Are, are you with me? That, that's, that's real, true, genuine love. When they've seen you at your worst and they still love you. When they've seen when you failed and they still love you. That they know that you don't have to, when, when you're around them, you don't have to try to pretend to be somebody you're not. That you can just be you and you can just be real with them. And, and, and I want you to know that's what true love is. And, and I, I hope this makes sense. I, I, I've, been, I've been praying about this this week and I hope this makes sense. I want you to know that love and judgment go hand in hand. Love and judgment go hand in hand. True love really does exist in the presence of judgment. Let me, let me, kind, of, let me kind of try to unpack what I'm meaning by this. You, you think of the people that, what I was talking about just a moment ago, those people who know your failures, those people that know the real you, and they still love you anyways. They, they've seen those qualities. They've seen those bad qualities in you, and they still love you anyways. That's true love. And, and, and I'll tell you this, true love also tells you the truth. You know what I was telling you about, like very few of us have many people in our lives who know the real us. That small group of people that I have in my life, they're the group of people that I can count on to tell me the truth. They're the people I can count on to tell me, Pat, you're wrong. Pat, you're thinking on this stinks. Pat, you need to correct this. And I'm open to that because we have, we have that, that close, intimate uh, fellowship together. And I'm telling you, they will make a judgment call on my life and are willing to tell me the truth about it. That, that judgment and true love really do go hand in hand. And, and I'll tell you this, the Old Testament is filled with warnings of, of God saying, hey, you know what? You need to fix this because otherwise judgment is gonna come. You need to correct this, otherwise bad things are gonna happen. And, and quite honestly, some of those warnings are kind of frightening if, if you read through some of them. But I, but I want you to think for a moment. God, in, in those moments, God is actually being merciful in those moments when he's warning of judgment to come. He's actually being extremely loving. I, I remember back when I, when I was in college, and on your first day in class, the professor would oftentimes give you a syllabus that really kind of laid out, all right, this is what we're gonna cover this year, this is when the tests are gonna be, this is when your papers are gonna be due, and they kind of, he, he, the professor would sit and kind of lay it all out for us on the very first day of class. And, and I, had one, I had one of those professors where one day, you know, on that very first day, he said, all right, I want you to know, like, this is the expectation, this is, this is what I'm, I'm laying out for you. And these are the dates that your papers are due. And I, and, and I want you to know, I, I might have some people come up to me a day or two before the paper, and they're going to ask, oh, can, can I have an extension? Can I have a grace period in order to get this paper done? And he would say, I want you to know, this is the grace I'm giving you right now. The answer is no. I'm giving you 16 weeks notice, and then that paper is going to be due. If you turn it in after that date, it will be a zero. He was being gracious up front by saying, hey, this is the expectation. This is what I want and, and, and what, I, what I expect from you. And this is going to be the consequence if you don't. That, that's a very loving thing to do. When I, when I parent my children, there's times where I say, hey, you know what? If you do this, then this is going to happen. 
All right? I'm not doing it because I'm being angry or mean. I'm, try- I'm doing it because I'm loving. I'm trying to spare you from the unpleasantness that will result if you do that certain, that certain behavior. And, and so I want you to write this down, n- number three, because this is, this is kind of really the, the key part of, of this entire message of what we're talking about today, that the overarching message of the Bible is the love of God for his people. The overarching message of the Bible is the love of God for his people. I have, I have a couple scriptures I'm just gonna come through real quick. John 3, 16, familiar to most everybody in this room, but for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Isaiah 54, 10, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not shake nor my covenant be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Zephaniah 3, 17, he says, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. I, and I just love that picture right there. Can you imagine that the Lord rejoices over you with singing? And, and I, I, I mean, there's hundreds. I, I could give you hundreds of different verses that say the, the whole message of the Bible is God's love for his people. And, and I'll tell you this, God, is, God does not judge because he's angry. He judges because he loves. And that, that's key. God doesn't judge people because he's angry. He judges because he loves. He doesn't correct because he's mean and vengeful. He corrects because he loves us. And so if you think of any good parent, and I'm taking it for granted that, that all of you who are parents of the room, that you are great parents, and those times where you've had to discipline your children, all right, and I'll tell you, like I've told my kids this, they would all attest to this. I've told them, the thing I hate most about being a dad, the thing I hate most about being a parent is having to discipline my kids. I hate it. It's the one thing I hate about being a dad. And I'll tell you, if you're a good parent, you're gonna judge the behavior and you're gonna correct or discipline the behavior, and you're not doing it because you're mean and you're hard and you're angry. You do it because you're lo- you love your child. You, you love your child enough to discipline them. In fact, the, the Bible teaches that very fact that a parent that refuses to discipline their child actually doesn't love their child at all. In fact, the Bible uses pretty harsh words. He says, you hate your child if you won't discipline your child. And so when, when the Lord disciplines, when, when we discipline, it's not because, oh, we enjoy, man, I just can't wait to give this. No. No, not at all. With the times that God judges, the times that God disciplines isn't because he's mean and isn't because he's angry or wrathful. It's because he loves, and he loves enough to not let that behavior continue. Like I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell I'll just be honest with you. There's times, and thankfully, I, I don't have to do it. I, I have great kids. I don't have to do it too terribly often. But there's times I have to discipline my kids. And it's because I see a bigger picture right now than just this one behavior. I see the long game, the end game, that if I don't deal with this behavior now, it's going to lead to much worse things later on. And so I need to, I need to deal with this. I need to take care of it right now. And, and I'll tell you, what I'm talking about, like, this, this good parent that, that, that disciplines and loves at the same time. There, there's no greater model for this than that of Jesus. 
And, and I, I want you to write this down. Number four, Jesus is the perfect embodiment of grace and truth, love and judgment. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of grace and truth, love and judgment. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. That I, I'm telling you, love and judgment really do go hand in hand. And there's probably, there's probably no greater demonstration of this than when Jesus has the interaction with the woman who was caught in adultery. In fact, I, I want to I share that with you right now. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Now, this is a little bit of a longer passage, but, but I want to I share it with you because it's, it's that key and that important. It says, At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked the woman, woman, and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And I just absolutely love this story. It's such a beautiful, beautiful story. And what's so interesting to me about this is this woman, she was caught in the act. Like this wasn't just like hearsay. It wasn't, oh, I heard Sally's telling, Judy telling so-and-so that she had, no. Like they caught her in the act. There's no, there's no disputing that. And the law was clear. She should be stoned. And, and in this moment, Jesus demonstrates both grace and truth, love and justice. He's gracious enough not to condemn her, but he's, he's loving enough to tell her the truth, to leave that life of sin. He, he doesn't excuse what she was doing. He judged her behavior. He corrected the behavior, but he was merciful enough to spare her the penalty from it. And, I, and I'll tell you what, all of us have been that woman who was caught in adultery. All of us in this room, and maybe it's not been adultery, but all of us in this room, we've been caught dead to rights doing something that we shouldn't do. We have no excuse. And God has been gracious to us. He's been merciful enough to spare us the penalty that our sin deserved. And that right there is the heart of God. That's the heart of God right there, that he's loving and gracious, truthful and judging. He does it all at the same time. That's who God is. That's the true heart of God. And so I want to close with this. There, there's a passage I'm going to read to you from the book of Isaiah. And, and in this passage, I, I'm going to share with you, it's from Isaiah 42. Isaiah's prophesying about the Messiah. He's actually prophesying about Jesus coming hundreds of years before Jesus actually, actually arrived on the scene. I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. And this really kind of sums up everything I'm talking about today about God being a, a, a God of justice and love and grace and mercy. 
Isaiah 42, verses one through four. Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Again, this is Isaiah talking about Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is gonna bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth judge, justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. If you read that, that portion in those four verses, Isaiah's talking three times in there how Jesus is going to bring, bring justice to the earth. He's going to be bringing justice. He's bringing judgment on the earth. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter, be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. But, but if you would, if you can put verse three back up on the, on the screen for just a moment. And I want to focus on this. That it says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And I, and I want you just to, just to paint a picture in your mind for just a moment. If, if, you, if you look around in some of the wetlands in the Mediterranean area, there, there's reeds that grow up out of these wetlands. And the, these reeds can be used for any, any number of things. You can, you can write with them. You could essentially make like a quill out of them. You can lash them together and you can make a boat. You can put a roof on a house with these reeds. But if a reed is bruised or if a reed is broken and you try to write with it, it's gonna break. If you try to make a boat out of it, it's gonna leak. If you take this broken reed and you try to put it on the roof of your house, your house is, is going to leak. And so what's a, what's a broken or a bruised reed good for? Well, it's not good for anything. We just throw it out. We're gonna throw it in the fire. We're not, we're not gonna use this at all. And it's the same, same thing with that smoldering wick, that, that if you think about like a candle or a lamp, that once, once that, that candle or that lamp is out of fuel, that wick is just kind of useless. It just kind of smolders there because there's, no, there's nothing fueling that candle or that lamp anymore. And, and the good news about this, and, and this is what I, I want you to see, is that when Jesus comes to bring judgment on the earth, the, broods, the bruised reeds he will not break and the smoldering wicks he will not snuff out. I, I want you to know this morning, he's talking about you and I. We, we are those bruised reeds and we are those smoldering wicks. Like, I, I, I guarantee you, all of us in this room are broken in one place or another. Nobody has it all together. I was talking to you about that, that image, that persona we try to put up, that front we like to, to share with people. Underneath that, every one of us, we're bruised and we're broken. And I guarantee you, everybody in this room, if not right now, at some point in your life, in the past or in the future, you felt like that smoldering wick where you have just no fuel left at all. And you're just kind of just smoking there, just ready for someone to put it out. But what Isaiah is saying is, when Jesus comes to bring judgment on the earth, those broken reeds, those smoldering wicks, us, he's not gonna, he's not gonna snuff us out. And he's not gonna break us, discard us, and throw us out. No, in fact, he's gonna restore us. He's gonna restore every single one of us. His love and grace goes hand in hand with judgment. He brings judgment and love at the exact same time. 
And so maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you might feel like that bruised reed where you just feel, where you just feel broken, you feel useless, you feel tossed aside by life and by, and by society. And you look at, at your life and you say, man, there's no possible way I could ever be used for anything or amount to, to anything. Or maybe you feel like that, that smoldering wick that you just, you're just running on fumes and you got nothing left. There, there's, there's no fuel left to feed that fire and you're just kind of smoldering. Like I said, just waiting for someone to snuff you out. And I, I have good news for you. That God sent his son Jesus for the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks of this world. And you don't have to be afraid of God's judgment. You, you, we don't have to be afraid of God's judgment. If we put our faith and our hope and our trust in him, we don't need to be concerned about it. We don't need to be worried about it. In fact, we can look forward to that day. We can look forward to that day because on that day, Jesus said he's gonna come and he's gonna make all things new. He's gonna make, that, that deserved a better amen than that. Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna make all things new. He's gonna make, he's gonna restore all things once again. And I'll tell you what, Jesus looked at you and he looked at the mess in your life and he looked at your situation. He passed judgment on it and said, that is wrong, that isn't right. And his solution wasn't to bring calamity on you. His solution was, I'm gonna send my son. I'm gonna send my son, Jesus. And he's gonna restore those bruised reeds and those smoldering wicks. He sent his son to make all things right. So I'm gonna ask everyone just to close your eyes for, for just a moment right now. And so if that's you right now, if you feel like, that bru- like you're that bruised reed or you feel like you're that smoldering wick that you just feel like, oh, I'm, I'm just at the end of me and you need the love and the grace of Jesus to touch your life right now, would you just raise your hand for me right now? If that's you, praise God, I see several hands in the room. Awesome, 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 awesome. I just wanna pray for you this morning. because God's not done yet. He's not finished yet. So let me just pray for you. Lord, God, I, I just thank you, God, so much. I thank you, God, that you are the same yesterday and today and forever. Thank you that you are, just like Jonah said, that you are gracious and compassionate, that you're slow to anger. God, that you are abounding in love. Thank you, Lord, that you relent from sending calamity on us. Lord, we're so grateful for your love. God, that you looked at us, you've seen us, and you judged our actions. And God, you still loved us anyways, just like we were talking about this morning, Lord. God, that you know the worst things about us. You know the worst impulses that we have. And God, that you still wanted to send your love anyways. You still sent your son to us. And we thank you for that. This God, we call out to you today. We call out to you this morning. And we ask you to have mercy on us. God, all of us in this room, God, we are... We are bruised reeds and we are smoldering wicks. And God, we rejoice that you're not gonna break us, God, that you're not gonna snuff us out, but God, that you're gonna restore us as you bring judgment. Father, for those in the room, God, who've never called out to you as Savior, Lord, we, we, we repent right now that just as those in Nineveh, God, we turn away from our sins and our mess. And Lord, we acknowledge you and we acknowledge your forgiveness and we ask you to forgive us and we know that you will, and that you will. God, that, Lord, as you've demonstrated over and over throughout history, 
God, when people cry out to you in humility, your answer is always yes. And God, we need you. God, we need more of you in our lives. As we get ready to leave here this morning, God, help us to be thinking on your goodness. God, let your praise be continually in our mouths, Lord, as we acknowledge you in all that we do. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. As a church, it is our honor to play a small part in what God is doing through your life, and we would love to continue on that journey. To find out what your next steps could be in your relationship with Christ, all you have to do is go to newsoundplymouth.church to connect. Thank you for all of you who consistently give, serve, and pray. You are the ones that God is using to truly make a difference in our community as we live out our mission of leading people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. We hope you tune in next week.